Welcome to episode six of the Radical Narrative Podcast. I am your host, Mylon Tatusis, coming at you from rural Treaty 6 territory on the prairie, otherwise known as Saskatchewan. I hate calling it Saskatchewan. Regardless, I live, eat, and breathe out here. This is where I position my work and what I love to do, being out on the land and working with my people. I'm really excited about today's episode. Today, I'm sitting down with Manuela Ballet Castro, a Chilean activist and scholar of Mestiza background who is from Chile and a guest on Turtle Island since 2005. She holds a PhD in gender, race, and sexuality and social justice from the University of British Columbia and a master's in women and gender studies from the same university. She is very politically aware, and I learned a lot from her discussing Central and South American political mobilization, so I hope you do too. Join us today as we discuss North American and South American colonialism and the political, economic, and social fallout of that. And more importantly, we discuss anti-colonialism, anti-patriarchy, and anti-capitalism. So stay tuned and listen in. Welcome to Radical Narrative, Manuela. Thanks for sitting down with me. I've been enjoying the conversations we have been having and also looking forward to the conversations we're going to be having here for this podcast. Um, Can you introduce yourself to our listeners so they know who you are? Well, thanks for having me, first of all, Milan. Um, I am Manuela Valle Castro. Uh, I'm going to say it again slowly. Manuela Valle Castro. And uh, I am an uh, anti-colonial, anti-capitalist, feminist, and uh, from Chile. I have mestiza background, which means that I have both Spanish, Italian, and Afro-Indigenous ancestry um, from South America and um, I uh, I have been living in Treaty 6 for about six years now and in Turtle Island for 15. Uh, I work as the coordinator for the Anti-Racism Network for the last couple of years. And more recently, I, I work as the director of the Division of Social Accountability of the College of Medicine at, at the UFS. And uh, I've been involved in many different uh, community activisms and projects. Um, I also do some radio, some intersectional feminist radio. And when you say that you're like anti-colonial, anti-capitalist and things like that, I really got to see that firsthand because you were present at an action we did in Saskatoon in February last year where some of the inner city youth came together and wanted to do a solidarity action for Wissowetan. And we did occupy the space between the tracks and um, Saskatoon city land, which is legally like technically Saskatoon city land. Um, but we had a showdown with some white supremacists there and you were there. And I always take note of who's actually there in those spaces of tension because not many people can be there for whatever reason or choose not to be there, but you were there, you're present with us and, and the young people and uh, you were there holding space and, and yeah, can you give context and explain what happened there? Uh, yeah. So like, like many other conflicts in Canada and around the Americas, this was one of the, those cases in which 
It was, uh, you know, an extractive project, in this case, the Coastal Gas Link project, trying to uh, go through indigenous land without consent. Uh, the Wet Sweden Nation called for uh, solidarity actions. And, uh, yeah, a group of, of, uh, of youth from the court neighborhood uh, were holding space in the tracks. And um, I, I'm very aware um, of, like you're saying, the fact that not all bodies um, have the same privilege to uh, receive or not receive violence. And I know that indigenous bodies are already subjected to all kinds of systemic and uh, and all kinds of violence, right? And uh, I, I know that I hold privilege in the sense that even though uh, I am racialized as an immigrant, um, they they will be more, you know, they will be more cautious to, you know, in this hierarchy of value that that racism and colonialism puts in our bodies. Uh, I know that it would be harder for them to to do harm to me. So on the basis of, of recognizing and understanding that privilege that I hold, that I held in relationship to the indigenous youth that were there in all their strength and vulnerability, um, you know, I, 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 I think uh, the group of people that were there, we understood that those youth needed to be protected and, uh, and that there, there needed to be bodies between the racist, um, you know, people that were there. Yeah, I was there too. And we were, we were sort of just gauging the safety and keeping everyone's safety in mind. But I think we originally didn't know that there was some anti or there was a pro-pipeline rally or something downtown that just coincided with that day. And then those group of people just shifted their whole protest and came to our action. And so, yeah, there was like a couple hours showdown on either side of the track that was pretty tense for a while. Yeah, this is something that I, I've rarely seen in Canada, these kind of like more direct confrontations maybe. Um, I had experienced them more growing up in Chile, you know, having these kinds of encounters and attacks with uh, right-wingers and fascists and people like that. But, but yeah, I was surprised because, you know, people really like their politeness and their polite racism. <laughs> yeah, and this was the total opposite of that. Yeah, they weren't really polite. I mean, they were... One thing that always stands out is they were visual. Well, they were verbally, um, of course, they were verbally being violent and and making a bit of threats. But when a train was coming down the tracks, they were actually actively encouraging people to walk onto the tracks. Yeah, I remember that, and I always viewed that as like the classic Canadian um, approach to Indigenous people, where it's like a polite racism, where it's like we're not going to directly do anything to you, but if you just so happen to be in the way of whatever we're doing, then you're going to, you know, suffer the consequences. So it was very like, there was an allegory there for me when we were there that day. Definitely. And um, this is something that I find interesting about, uh, yeah, British colonialism and British racism is uh, I, I, you know, the function of the apology, for example, it's very interesting because the the gesture of saying I'm sorry for Canadians is a way of evading uh, accountability. And uh, it all it's all wrapped up in yeah, this benevolent 
liberal polite racism. Well, you said something interesting where um, you, you, what you noticed with British colonialism. So in terms of your own background and heritage and your own like geopolitical context, uh, you're coming at it from South America. So could you give our listeners like the, I guess, like the general difference of, of what we mean when we say British colonialism compared to like Spanish colonialism? Well, we have a sort of like, uh, you know, parallel but different histories of colonialism in South America, uh, you know, most notably we have Spanish colonialism, which is 500 years old. And um, Spanish colonialism was way more, um, I don't know, but it's it's got characteristics that make it different. For example, um, I noticed that in South America, we use a lot the public space to express you know, the the voice of what the people, what we call, you know, or the social movements. We use uh, spaces like squares and plazas and public spaces. We, we really use them in ways that are very, like, almost theatrical. And I think that has to do with the, the characteristic of Spanish colonialism, the way that they set up cities in which all the um, representatives of colonial power were concentrated in an area around a square so people would always come to the square to demonstrate and in general all colonialism is violent it's just that spanish colonialism was very aggressively violent like really brutal yeah spanish colonialism uh well was brutal and uh, also you know justified through religion it's older than british colonialism here in north america I mean, they they have in common, I guess, the, you know, the white supremacy and the creating of these hierarchies. Um, There's there's also Portuguese colonialism and Dutch colonialism in the Caribbean, French colonialism. Part of Spanish colonialism is is the Catholicism, right? That um, uh, we we got way more (laughs) Catholicism heavy Catholicism in South America, whereas in North America, I I think it's more Protestant and other forms of of Christianity that um, are slightly different. Yeah, there's different denominations, Orthodox, Protestant, Anglican, and Catholic, and a bunch of little variations of them wherever you go. And residential school systems are run predominantly by the Anglican and Catholic Church. Yeah, yeah. Like you guys got that pro the the Protestant work ethic, we never got that. <laughs> yeah, that's true, and a lot of our people abide by the Protestant work ethic, and they don't may not even know the origins of that whole paradigm and how that sort of exists in our communities today up here. I want to do a podcast episode on that where we unpack that, and the Spanish colonialism in the South, the religious aspect of it is still very prevalent in the South. And today, there's still a lot of aspects of Roman Catholicism being practiced and maintained by various communities on various levels. So it's it's prevalent down there. It, it does exist there. Yes. And that works really good for, for patriarchy, right? Yeah. Yeah, there's been definitely like uh, the influence of of toxic masculinity, but also just patriarchy where men are controlling the narratives and, and dominating the narratives and partly because that was instituted by the religion, the Western religion. And that's not necessarily a part of our cultural governance practices. It's just that Western governance privileged 
the voices of men, and they still do today. We see that in various aspects of politics. You know, I, when I was growing up, I was very aware of, um, of, of capitalism. My parents were always talking about capitalism. They were communists. And, and uh, well, so I understood that analysis about capitalism. Then later, I was very uncomfortable about how patriarchal <laughs> the communists and the lefty spaces were, right? So that's when my analysis uh, became, and I know that feminist can be a contentious term for many women of color because feminism has been almost co-opted as this, you know, neoliberal project of self-improvement for middle-class white women. <laughs> but I say feminism, I really mean an analysis of patriarchy and understanding how colonialism and patriarchy and capitalism have been produced together and that we have to, to disentangle the way that they're producing each other. So I see how in South America, patriarchy uh, benefits a lot from that Catholic culture, you know, the image of the virgin, the self-sacrificing women, woman. Yeah, and I guess we could just jump into the main, one of the main conversations I wanted to have too was the fact that there is a lot of feminist mobilization in Latin America that has been very vocal in the past uh, few months. Yeah, can you speak to that? Because it, it was very visual, like even even the songs they were singing and things like that, and it was very um, cool to see. And it really got the ball rolling politically. Like it really necessitated the conversations that had to have happened for change to happen. And it wasn't just like an overnight thing. Yes. This has been cooking for a while. It's got actually decades in the cooking. And uh, you would probably not connect the feminists of today with a, with a movement like the Mothers of Plaza Mayo. But there's actually like a lineage there. Yeah, and for our listeners who aren't familiar, the mothers of Plaza de Mayo were basically a group of mothers in 1970s Argentina who were coming together to openly protest the Argentine government who were actively kidnapping, murdering, and killing uh, young activists and people who they viewed as dissidents to their government. And a lot of those young people were actually openly communist and socialist. There's documentaries out there about this, but what was unique about their mobilization was that they were very public in the plaza, openly uh, portraying their activism. Why is that unique? Again, a lot of these kind of like theatrical, uh, political performances that that have been part of the social movements and very much part of the uh, you know feminist social movements, feminist movements, anti-colonial movements, and anti-neoliberal movements they have used uh, the public space in very creative ways. And of course, this is something that, you know, we learn in South America to do with the mothers of Plaza Mayo, who, you know, throughout the 70s and 80s and for like decades, they used their bodies, you know, to mourn publicly for the disappeared. And uh, they were heavily repressed just for doing that, right? For reminding people that. and. Um, when political discourses have fallen short, you know, when when we have been disappointed by the the um, third way, you know, approaches to socialism and whatever. So third wave socialism being sort of like 
keeping the social justice aspects, but still exploring certain capitalist ideology and economic ideology. We kind of see that with social Democrats on the prairie, the NDP, which isn't really like a form of true socialism. It's sort of like the polite socialism that accommodates everybody and is not too radical. So how in, like generally speaking again, how in South America, how have people kept that in check? The streets with all this like vitality and they have still held kind of like the the bigger utopias for transformation. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, like taking it to the streets and being visual in the plaza and those type of actions where you're actually on the street under the banner of various leftist ideologies that in general in Latin America are very widespread and have a long history in general and are used as a way of showing your disapproval and using that as a way to get your message out there and facilitate change. And we've seen that happen in Chile. So so what happened in Chile and, and why is that important to look at? Like what happened in Chile was very interesting because everybody in the political world kept saying that like we can't touch capitalism, we can't touch neoliberalism, we can't touch the constitution, but we can do this and this and that. And um and the streets kept saying like no we want to transform everything. We want to transform everything. And that's why they kept pushing in the streets for a new constitution in Chile. Yeah, for sure. And the the listeners who aren't familiar will post a link up for some of that. But for those that aren't familiar, um, Chile is actually going to rewrite their constitution, which is probably weird for like Canadians and Americans to hear about because the constitutions up here are supposed to be like supreme or godly. But no, constitutions are supposed to be rewritten and adjust over time, and Chile is going to do that. Oh, yes. Yeah, thank you for that. And um, But yeah, the, I mean, the, the, the movements of, uh, you know, the, the motherist movements in the 70s, and, uh, and yeah, you're right, not from Argentina to um, uh, Central America, group, groups of mothers, you know, that organized, and they, you know, they paved the way for all these other waves of feminism that came with the, the hashtag Nuna Menos. Um, I guess just like a decade ago, now it's going to be Nuna Menos stood for um, like not one more victim of, uh, of gender violence, of gender-based violence. And making um, very explicit uh, connections between um like patriarchy at home and the patriarchy of the state, the patriarchy of um, institutions, uh, connecting them with microaggressions, with the representation of women, and just like great both academic and activist work throughout South America in terms of feminism, and a lot, a lot of, of course, work with uh, queer analysis, right, and deconstructing mm-hmm. what what is gender under under these colonial terms that we've been imposed, and uh, what is sexuality, what is family, you know, what is kinship, all these things are, yeah, are really. All these analyses are erupting right now. And I mean, in Mexico, I don't know if you followed, but just like a month ago, a group of women who were also mothers of victims of feminicides, they went and squat, they took over, they occupied, not squatted, they occupied the building of the Commission of Human Rights. And I don't know if you saw how they like uh, vandalized the art inside and then they they put it in, in auctions, in public auctions. Oh, wow. 
for the money to go to the survivors of sexual violence. I, I'll send you some uh, links in case some of your listeners are interested. But So again, that link between feminism and activism and that very visual form of resistance taking place in, in the occupation of that space. Yeah, a lot of direct action and very sort of like artistic direct action because they, you know, they they deface these very traditional portraits of, you know, whatever, Mexican presidents or something. You know, they gave them like lipstick and eyeshadow and all kinds of things. And then they were selling them in an action. Yeah, it's really cool to see that bold type of mobilization take place. And it's really creative and it's really assertive and direct and open it's really admirable to see, and I really enjoy watching it and observing it from up here. It's really surreal. When you live here in North America, it just looks surreal, the things that happen in South America. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I wanted you on the podcast and, and to have this conversation publicly was is because for me, like in my work right now, um, I'm, I'm reading this book called Ethics of Liberation by Enrique Dussel. And um, it's just like mind blowing. And I've always known that there's been leftist movements in Central and South America, but there's always been also been this divide. Like we sort of unpacked that with you discussing uh, Spanish colonialism as compared to British colonialism. But one of the byproducts of colonialism is it cut us off from one another, it cut off North and South America uh, and linguistically speaking. So there's like this theme in academia where we invest in partnerships with other people from British colonies, so New Zealand and Australia, which is cool, which is great. You know, we get to come together and visit and talk story. However, the flight's cheaper to Mexico. One of the other things is that Central and South America is looked to as an impoverished place and a place where we could go down and do research or do work and extrapolate that and bring it back north. And it's kind of weird because we do see even, you know, missionaries still go south and do this type of work. We see companies go south and in very violent ways, too. And people don't connect those dots. And it's kind of sad that people want to go to Mexico for the tourism and go and celebrate with their families, you know, a year of hard work. But they do that without any real political or economic analysis. And overall, there's still this theme and flavor of going south for personal and professional reasons that don't yield, you know, a solidarity between the Americas and decolonization projects or any kind of political project that facilitates real change. It drives me nuts. What you're talking about drives me nuts. This sort of like linguistic barrier that we have to understand that the same Canadian mining companies that are, you know, sending the RCMP to hurt indigenous bodies here, the same Canadian companies are doing the same thing in Peru, in Guatemala, in Chile. So it's not about even like borders. No, this linguistic barrier drives me nuts because there's so much analysis that we need to do together to understand how like you're saying, our oppression and thus our liberation is bound together. This is not like, you know, rhetoric that, you know, it's it's very concrete. Like the same multinationals that are doing extractive practices that enable all kinds of violence, we're fighting the same people. Yeah, for sure. And I I, I do feel also that there's this that sort of like construction here, that representation of South America in very fixed ways. Fixed ways in what way? 
like from the South, sometimes we think that all North America is white, right? It tends to be constructed to us as white and that the indigenous people of North America are a thing of the past, right? They're just the past of North America, not the present or the future. Yeah, I agree. And there's not much solidarity work going on between indigenous people, not only because of the linguistic barrier, but also just because no one's dedicating much effort, I feel. Why do you think that is from your perspective? Because in North America, you guys are socialized to see us as a place of vacation or what's worse for academics as a place of field work, right? Yeah. Of only field work, but not a place of, for example, theory, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So it drives me nuts when a lot of people are doing academic work uh, about South America, but not engaging with South American authors or theorists as if we didn't have our own analysis and we need to look at our analysis together. Right? Yeah, I agree entirely. And a lot of that is going to be political conversations around political mobilizing and in particular, like indigenous mobilizing. I know we're talking about South America and Central America very generally. There's a lot of diversity there politically and things like that. And a lot of very specific geopolitical contexts and indigenous contexts. But again, what we're saying and what you're saying has a lot of truth to it because we do have to be open to navigating these conversations together. Yeah, imperialism and, and, and the language, the colonial languages get in the way. Uh, where once for a presentation, I tried do, doing the exercise of, um, of disrupting that for this specific purpose of creating sort of like a way that we can talk about the Americas differently. So I just turned the map sideways of the Americas. And then I thought, okay, the left side speaks mostly Spanish. That's our colonial language. The right side of the map speaks mostly English, colonial language. But then there's a bridge between these two. And that's the Caribbean. Totally. And that's where Fanon's from. France Fanon, one of the scholars I really look into and dive into with my work. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, it just looks interesting when you... Yeah, so just reshaping that whole map from the perspective of the Americas in a way that is unified and having conversations with each other because the current map's top down. So again, it's it's very hierarchical. But again, flipping that map, that's a really cool tool. It makes a lot of sense to do that and visualize things in that way because all three areas, North, Central, and South, are sort of unified and on the same playing field. It sounds uh, crazy, but actually the way that we look at these maps, I think they totally prefigure our imagination of how our relationships are structured, right? Because we know that aid has to go from the north to the south, right? Um, Whatever has to go from the north to the south, as as if it has to, like, everything starts in the north and then it trickles down to the south. Whereas all those things are constructed, the universe doesn't have an upside or downside, right? Like we can do, we can do whatever we want with the map. So I turned it sideways. And that's why I think, how I think we need to have these conversations. Yeah, we do. We definitely have a conversation about this, more conversations about this, because even for me, like just how I'm writing my thesis right now, I'm positioning the Americas as like the Americas. And some of the mm-hmm. feedback I'm getting from some people I'm running these ideas by is there's the assumption I'm talking about America or Americans. So even just like that basic mm-hmm. linguistic barrier is so limiting. Oh, yeah. Oh, don't even get me started with like, you know, I'm an American. Yeah. 
well, which kind, right? Because well, I'm from the America, right? Like Turtle Island here or Aviala, the ones in Suyo. And also America for like that Italian guy, yeah. Americo Vespucio. Yeah, the fact that America was named after the Italian cartographer who drew the map. Like we have much better names for the political project that we could create reimagining these territories, right? Under other names and possibilities. Yeah, there is. And then there is also this this linguistic investment in political theory. So that sort of gets us into the next conversation is um, for me, like growing up on the prairie, we grew up really immersed in um, our land-based practice, but also like some of the political philosophy we have traditionally around nationhood, around um, nation-to-nation agreements and, and autonomy. Um, and for me growing up, I always observed the left as being predominantly white university students or social Democrats like the NDP. And in fact, like the NDP did try to mobilize indigenous people under their banner and they still do today. Um, and there's this famous image of Tommy Douglas sitting with um, the Federation of Saskatchewan Indians at a time. And, and that's always portrayed as like Tommy Douglas who in Saskatchewan is notable for um, getting no, uh, universal health care which even many people argue was an indigenous concept through treaty. Um, but he kind of gets harked as being trying to mobilize indigenous people under this banner. But if you look at like the, the precursor to the NDP, the CCF, the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, um, their documents and their founding documents were completely absent of indigenous people. Um, so we've always observed it. Yeah, we've always observed these like this form of leftism as being predominantly white, and then also just clashing with right, the right in general. Um, but it's not necessarily like that in, in Latin America. It's not like that in Central and South America. This is an interesting thing. And I think that, um, how can I put this without sounding too Marxist? But like, their characteristics of our, I guess, labor force or proletariat or working class uh, looks different in terms that indigenous people were so radically marginalized from the economy, right? Yeah, so like through the Indian Act, having literally no access to any means of um, social capital or even capital in general are just like a salary or even access to unions or anything like that because the Indian Act was such an aggressive form of oppression. Like completely just cut off from the from the economy in Canada. They didn't even make it to be what we would call like the working class. Yeah, definitely. Like we're just starting to see that. Like I feel like in my work and what I'm looking at, we're just starting to see like the middle class of indigenous people on the prairie sort of emerge in the last few decades. Um, and and mm-hmm. like even with my analysis, we're starting to see like even an elite class emerge that's sort of falling into neo-colonial relationships. Yeah, but even for, you know, for, say, uh, a precariously employed young indigenous person, yeah, like, is it going to be attracted to a traditionally, like, Mm -hmm. labor union that, like, I don't know if that really makes a lot of sense. Whereas I think that the way that the left proliferated in uh, in South America, uh, how did this happen? Was it because we had an agrarian reform? I wonder if that's what happened because, you know, they really mobilized the peasant. 
and and the racial and, and there's a sort of like an overlapping many times between the campesinos peasants mm -hmm. and indigenous people and uh people that you know like paulo freire who is super known yeah. here in in north america you know he developed this whole pedagogy of of the oppressed in the context of things like this like agrarian reforms where alphabetization was a political uh, way of uh, engaging people in in politics right and uh my experience for example when i've been to bolivia is that you go to the most remote areas and indigenous people who live you know completely in rural rural remote areas like you can't find anyone who is not organized who doesn't wow. belong to a, a, a you know these farm yeah. unions territorial you know organizations we call them territorial like territory like geographically organized base like it's so wow. tight the level of of um political education and but at the heart of the social movements there's always been a decolonial impulse and that's very apparent now in all the the social uprisings in ecuador in chile bolivia peru like at the forefront there's uh, you know analysis of of racism and colonialism because it completely um you know it's not a coincidence that our poor in south america also tend to be the the people who are racialized and also tend to be indigenous people and also tend to be black people and uh you know other racialized uh diasporas that move around but yeah i don't know if i'm rambling too much. no no it's good it's um there's lots there to unpack and i really wanted you on this podcast to lay that out is to lay the fact out that there is predominantly um indigenous people who make up um, the people who are in poverty and who are physically oppressed and have been historically oppressed. So there's obviously a lot of effort given to politically organize and mobilize them. And we see that in Bolivia, where the indigenous vote has been very radical oh, in, yeah. in shaping um, Bolivian politics. But yeah, I just want to have that general conversation of of how the left exists in Central and South America, because it doesn't necessarily translate to here 100% because we have very specific geopolitical circumstances. But there is a very visible socialist organizing taking place in Bolivia. Mm -hmm. Bolivia is such an interesting, such an interesting case. And to tell you the truth, I don't speak about Bolivia or Venezuela or Cuba in the same way uh when i'm here talking to north americans that when i do in south america in south america i allow myself to be way more critical mm. of you know of evo and maduro and all the the socialist uh, governments that we have in latin america but in north america i'm very cautious because they've been so demonized and i had so many like liberal leftist coming to me to tell me why do you support evo i, I you know yeah. isn't he a dictator and i'm like why well because he's going into a fourth term and i was like well do you feel the same way about angela merkel yeah and they'll be like oh I'm like yeah see sure. that's the problem he's indigenous 
Yeah, and the vote up here is really different because we are stuck with voting for a settler often tied to a settler political party that has ties to settler colonial infrastructure that we don't control. Um, so I don't dedicate time to rocking the vote because I do see that as a form of political assimilation in how it exists in Canada. However, when we look at socialism in Bolivia, it exists in a very unpolite way where it's there to push back against the right in very aggressive ways, in very real ways, because it's a lived political project by everybody. It's not just going to the ballot box and casting a vote every four years. No, it's actually politically mobilizing your people to push back against capitalism, to push back against neoliberalism and embody those fights. Up here, I think we're still far too polite to even um, have real conversations about what type of politics are we going to invest in. And it's embarrassing because we do have indigenous liberals. We do have indigenous people invested in these different political parties that aren't reflective of who we are. So they just kind of jump the fence and go back and forth. And there's no autonomy. There's no strength in those political decisions. We're just sort of going with the cards dealt to us. And I'm really critical of the process. And partly because I'm involved in indigenous nationhood projects through treaty and nation-to-nation agreements. So I invest time in that. But it's really interesting to see how Bolivia doesn't hold back and just completely disrupts the right and capitalism and concepts of land and just exists truthfully. I mean, you can't even imagine for the right-wing racist oligarchy in Bolivia how much of a slap in the face. They can't stomach it that they have a socialist, you know, that they had a socialist indigenous person, union leader, um, you know, be reelected again. And the right in Bolivia didn't like that. So they actually organized. And I'll post some links that sort of highlight that for our listeners to look into too, if they want. But what did the right do? What they usually do, which is to throw a coup. And this is what they've been doing. This would be another whole episode of, of just talking about all the coups in Latin America from 1956, Guatemala, to last year in Bolivia. It's a rich history. Yeah, a lot of history. And, and we would have to do multiple podcasts to discuss that because there were multiple coups in Central and Latin America that were backed by the right, by capitalism and by the U.S. And there was a lot of fallout and a lot of mayhem over the years as a result of those coups. If any of our listeners are interested, they could read uh, Eduardo Galeano, uh, The Open Veins of Latin America. And that's just documents part of our history of colonialism and interventionism and imperialism. Yeah. So what have you noticed um, in terms of socialism from your perspective and just the left in general from your lived experience? I feel like in the left... We've had like three movement, three moments in my, of my living life that I can see, right? We had the, the 60s and 70s sort of like Cuban revolution led uh, left, you know? Yeah, the Cuban revolution led left where it's sort of a popular image now. Still kind of like shapes a lot of the imagery of, of our left, you mm. know, Che Guevara and uh, what have you. Fidel Castro, of course. Um, but then, of course, there's the other moment of the left when they, after, you know, the Washington consensus and after the fall of the Soviet Union, they're like, oh, we were so naive. No, we didn't mean a revolution. We meant just like a moderate <laughs> yeah. socialism. 
right? So the left, part of the left in 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 South America went that way and got completely yeah. neoliberal. Chile is the perfect example of that, right? Like we had garments like Bachelet, who was namely a socialist, but with completely neoliberal policies and a very, uh, you know, oppressive state. And then after that fell apart, that second version of, of uh, they called it their way in, in, uh, in England, I think, we call them like social democrats. Yeah. When that fell apart, right? It's when we see this third movement of the left, which is completely articulating these three things that I am so here to see these articulated, right? Which is finally talking about, you know, anti-capitalism, but at the same time talking about anti-patriarchy and anti-colonialism. Yeah, anti-patriarchy, anti-colonialism, and anti-capitalism sort of coming together to sort of be this trifecta of how the left is mobilizing now. So why are these three things important for us that we have to take into consider in terms of political mobilizing? And why are they important to you in particular? Because again, when I was growing up, we were aspiring to be like Cuba, right? We were aspiring to have like patriarchal communism, (laughs) patriarchal militarized communism, right? Which... I'm not so here for it, you know, that's what I'm saying. Like, I'm not going to talk bad about Cuba to North Americans, but, you know, talking to Cubans and to other South Americans, I will say, oh, yeah, that's so sexist and patriarchal and militarized. Who wants to live like that? Yeah, totally. So those three things, anti-patriarchy, anti-capitalism and anti-colonialism, sort of coming together to create a better project. And I still feel like a lot of people get caught up in the theory and the romanticization of like Cuba leftism and things like that. And I think one big thing too that I think a lot of people are just coming to terms with with political theory, like my generation coming at it from living in North America is that these leftist projects existed over time and they've been tried and some of them don't work. And mm-hmm. same with decolonization, the way Fanon highlights it is it's it's a project that you have to undergo and you have to create the blueprints and you test it out. And of course, there's going to be improvement that needs to be made. Of course, it's not going to be be all end all political structures. Um, and I think that's really important to highlight when mm-hmm. we talk about the left, too, is because what we heard about it growing up was a, like a lot of it is Red Scare stuff. So coming at it from U.S.'s relationship to the Soviet Union, which is in itself just a very specific oh geopolitical circumstance. So indigenous people hear that. We see it on mm-hmm. the media. We see it in Hollywood. So we don't necessarily tend to have a more in-depth analysis about how the left mobilized in Central and South America, which ultimately, like you're saying, is, you know, ultimately founded by um, Mestizo and indigenous people and ultimately those who have been oppressed. Oh, my God. And you know what you're saying about like Cold War, kind of like anti-communism? It's so alive here in the prairies. It is. (laughs) I don't know if it has to do with the, like, uh, the Russian diaspora, (laughs) if they were like... If they were loyal to the Tsarist yeah. or if they suffered under the Soviet Union. But there, I feel like there's a, such a widespread anti-communist and just like you were saying, red scare. Yeah. You know, this specter is haunting Europe, specter is haunting Canada. 
And it's really weird to see. It's yeah, ridiculous. it's really weird to see because me, you know, diving into some leftist theory, like Red Scare communism was it was like very specific circumstance. And then, I mean, at the same time, I think it's also fueled by, again, like the white settler leftist who knows left political theory, but it's like traditional Marxism or, you know, it's political history and political philosophy. It's not like a live project. And on the flip side of that, you have like Canadians who literally are the replicators of U.S. political theory and just basically do this weird thing where they just replicate what's going on. In the U.S. And like on a previous podcast, I highlighted how we always see the U.S. Confederate flag up here in Canada. And it's really weird. I think like a lot of the Red Scare stuff, I I should get somebody to look into that and pod with them about why it exists in Canada. But legitimately, there are people out there who just replicate what's going on in the U.S. and watch the U.S. YouTube channels and listen to U.S. podcasts and just start to replicate those narratives. But look at these guys like like our friends, the white supremacists that were there at the tracks are the same people who are protesting now the anti the, the anti maskers they're basically libertarians yeah. and they 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 build their whole discourse in anti-communism yeah. so they just basically defend no regulations extreme free market because anything else is totalitarianism even the mask <laughs> even the, the mask is the reason you should be rebelling to the government right because that's totalitarianism. Not any of the other yeah. stuff. But, <laughs> but yeah, these, these libertarians, they, they thrive and they, they really, uh, it really resonates with people. These discourses of individualism and meritocracy and, uh, you know, the, the Sask party won again in our provincial mm-hmm. elections. And there were a discourse that, you know, I got the brochure in my mailbox. They basically said strong five yeah. times. Yeah. And that that whole strong terminology does have very it has very real political connotations when you just look at it from a political history lens of like even Europe and and South America is there's a very specific project that type of terminology refers to. I think they're just talking about extractivism, right? Strong economy means oil and gas extraction. Yeah, it definitely means oil and gas extraction. But for me, when I start to hear like strong and like this, this hark on like um, settler, like for me, I'll use the term settler work ethic. And, and that for me, that's all like settler oh, colonialism. Yeah. That's all power and control. That's all dominance. Settler masculinity too. Yeah, like we've seen that at the train tracks. They're, they're predominantly like very aggressive mm-hmm you know, settler males. So there's like, mm-hmm. there's these themes of like this power and dominance narrative. And and for me, I analyze that through just looking at settler colonialism and, and Western thought and how it's oppressed indigenous people over time. Um, but what I do notice now is that we're in a political climate, even with just looking at U.S. politics and Trump, where we need to have some sort of political analysis of the left and right. And I feel like for the most part, my people and, and, they have been predominantly silent about any sort of subscribing to left or right politics for, for good reason. Like there, we, we do have, we do have our own political and governance systems tied to our, our culture and things like that. But one big issue I'm noticing is that young people and even um, the emergence of, of a new like middle class, they're falling into a right political theology or they're falling into endorsing capitalism without even making the conscious choice. So like this whole 
notion around mm-hmm. having to partake in industry from the political standpoint or this whole notion of having to, you know, go the sort of entrepreneurship route and and create some sort of capitalist project and become an influencer. Like all this stuff's really tied yeah. to a very specific economic philosophy and even political philosophy. Yeah. And you know, that's that's a problem that, that I notice even uh, if you take like the TRC calls to action, like a lot of the things could be understood if somebody wanted to, you know, facetiously read everything in terms of individual yeah. success. You know, you could read everything as, oh yeah, reconciliation is, you know, yeah, like what you're saying, the, the individual success of some indigenous people, you know, economic. and But there's, I worry, yeah, about this, exactly what you're saying, because people do develop their, their kind of like, quote unquote, political subjectivities, right? And analysis based on their material conditions, right? And if what you're experiencing is kind of like a, uh, some social, some material social mobility, and you are kind of like invited and rewarded to, to use that level of individual success and, you know, self-improvement, self-made, whatever. Yeah. Thanks for saying that. And I'm really glad you picked up on that because it's not an accident that the liberal government and the liberal party, um, called for the full implementation of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's recommendations and calls to action. And basically everything that they do has like a weird market vibe to it, like an economic vibe to it, where we're going to bring indigenous people into the folds of the economy. And that really like, you know, doesn't sound pleasant at all, because like from my analysis, it's still settler colonialism. Yeah, I think a lot of programs that are labeled and they're kind of like reconciliation end up being like invitations for individual indigenous capitalism, maybe. Yeah. Individual indigenous capitalism for sure. I have colleagues in my generation, um, like up and coming scholars who view reconciliation as highly flawed, who view the TRC as highly flawed simply because the younger generation wasn't actively engaged in some of those conversations mm-hmm. And and I mean, just from the economic standpoint, just structurally, when we're looking at settler mm-hmm. colonialism, all, all the economic infrastructure is settler colonial, like it's tied to the settler state. So it's not like political autonomy for indigenous people or economic autonomy It's sort of being brought into the folds of the settler colonial structure, which, again, is inherently tied to um, today. It's tied to neoliberalism and capitalism. Yeah. And, you know, when we teach these things to white settlers, like when we teach Sheila McLean's article, we built life from nothing, the myth of meritocracy, settler colonialism and the myth of meritocracy. And we explain to people that, you know, (laughs) about intergenerational wealth, the effect of very specific sets of policies that rewarded settlers and boycotted the participation of indigenous people and other racialized diasporas. They hate it. They yeah. don't want to hear about it. They really don't want to have it. They keep wanting to think that indigenous people are poor because they deserve it. And yeah. white farmers are rich because they deserve it. And uh, it's a, there's a real obstacle. Yeah. This discourse of individualism and meritocracy really gets in the way for uh, for people to understand things like systemic racism. 
Yeah, like through the Indian Act, not having access to literally being able to participate in sort of any sort of political or economic projects, but just being regulated aggressively. And over time, settlers and white people sort of benefiting from not being regulated. So, of course, we have these very different livelihoods today. It's so easy to demonstrate that Canada had a, um, an economic apartheid and not only an all kind, a complete apartheid at the level of everything, right? But that the economy also applied that. So that what we're seeing today is not the result mm -hmm. of anybody's effort or skill, but rather who got rewarded by the colonial racist systems. Yeah. So knowing what you know from your lived experience and from you being here on the prairies, what has to happen? Like just a general political assessment of what you're observing needs to take place. Here in the prairies, I think that any conversation, any engagement with an analysis of, of neoliberalism, and I say neoliberalism very specifically like this, uh, uh, you know, the cuts in social services, the attacks on unions, the attacks on labor, on all kinds of labor rights and, 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 and any kind of regulations, right? Any kind of measure that has uh, profit over people, to, to oppose neoliberalism and capitalism here in the prairies, we have to articulate those indigenous and anti-racist analysis with uh, feminist analysis that talk about, like, you know, these uh, identities of prairie strong masculinities and extractivism and why yeah. people keep thinking that oil and gas are strong economies when it's, it's based on uh, cycles of boom and bust. Yeah, and also coming at things from the perspective of anti-capitalism, anti-patriarchy, and anti-colonialism. In my opinion, it's absolutely necessary to articulate those three for any kind of like leftist possibility, if we want to be effective, I mean. So I think everyone's aware of how to do things anti-colonial and anti-capital to certain extents, but what about anti-patriarchal? Anti-patriarchal, right, or feminist, incorporating a feminist analysis and analysis of, of how gender and sexuality is being used. Because, you know, again, like we were saying in, in that ridiculous Sask party campaign, the, the image of the, you know, like you were saying, <laughs> the white settler masculinity and their work ethic, quote unquote. It would be interesting to see how much of the rural vote for Scott Moe was actually female votes, because so much of that work ethic and uh, concept of strong work ethic by settler rural Saskatchewan um, exists culturally. So it'll be interesting to hear or even see our podcast with somebody who could speak to those rural dynamics because patriarchy is very real all over, but I'm really curious to see how it's unfolding in rural Saskatchewan right now. You highlighted something really cool. You're just talking about the critique of, of neoliberalism and things like that in general and how that's really important. And, and for me as an Indigenous per per person, all those expensive projects that are being promoted by, by capitalism and by settlers, and inherently a lot of these projects aren't anti-capitalist, they're not anti-colonial, and they're not anti-patriarchal. So they're literally doing damage to Indigenous people's lands, bodies, and, and the gender conversation isn't happening where, you know, the state violence implicitly also is violent on LGBTQT bodies and Indigenous women bodies. And there's very real measurable violence in this way. And at the same time, it's coming at the cost of Indigenous land. So like our literal access to landscape and environment, uh, we don't necessarily have autonomy over land. Um, everything's sanctioned legally. 
So even those projects are just like very physical in terms of controlling and dominating the physical landscape here. And the prairie has been rebranded to sort of fit the image of that Saskatchewan strong, prairie proud iconography. Um, yeah, the landscape does not look the way it did before. I'm sure it didn't have monocultures. Totally. And like, I always tell people when they fly into Saskatoon, they're going to see the checkerboards. I don't know if you've noticed that. Like, there's just like these squares, all the acres. Absolutely. And that's all been rebranded and reimagined to be that landscape. It's not even ours. So the physical landscape and even the political landscape has to change drastically. And that's what we need to do. It's like we're the majority and we're right <laughs> wanting to create a sustainable present and future and, you know, decolonize our economy. I know that you've been to, have you been to Chiapas? Yeah, me and my brother and a colleague spent some time down there and it was really um, transformational. I want to do a podcast on it. Wow. Well, lucky you. I've never been with the Satista, but but of course I've studied them much because they, you know, they have managed to do this for 30 years to, you know, not without losses or hardship, but they've managed to gain all these autonomous uh, systems based on indigenous people and their allies. Yeah, the Zapatistas to me have always been an indigenous movement. They're made up of Sotzal and Satal Mayan and other um, groups of people. However, they're inherently a leftist movement and it's been really successful in terms of obtaining land back. And there's truth to that project because they literally have acres back and there's an autonomous zone there and they're autonomous. That's their land. That's their territory. So they obtained this land back away from any sort of settler legal and economic relationship. It's 100% theirs. These things are very possible. And I mean, not that they're not happening in Canada, right? They're the, the tiny house warriors and everything that is happening in, in, um, in Caledonia, right? And all the different struggles that indigenous people across Turtle, Turtle Island are putting their bodies in the lines and occupying space. Um, just, yeah, the... The, the response seems to be, I mean, almost more violent here. It's interesting how the settler state could have these very physical standoffs and like very violent standoffs um, and police presence, but it's not articulated or it's not picked up as that. I still find even in the media portrayals, uh, indigenous people are still viewed as, as being like a nuisance. Oh, completely. Well, because, yeah, the, I mean, the narrative, it's its brutal mm -hmm. uh, how it gets reproduced that indigenous people are an obstacle for development. Uh, they can't have the same level of success because there's something wrong with them. And this is kind of like a cultural machine, right? It keeps reproducing this narrative that is so harmful about white superiority and white settler superiority and who belongs in Canada and who should own and benefit from all these resources. And that's also like tied to just like the economic system I find today, which is why it's really important for us to have these political conversations where we're looking at, at the left in relation to the right and just the presence of, of even far right politics now starting to take a big precedence mm -hmm. on the prairie, like openly our right politics but I'm, I'm very here for for creative solutions innovative things like 
I really want to understand what happened. Uh, how did it happen in the in Nova Scotia that 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 coalition of Micmac Micmac coalition managed to buy, you know, fifty percent of Clearwater Fisheries, now making them the legitimate, you know, owners of that commercial fishing piece, and that's separate from like their their fight for moderate like livelihood, right? which we saw how settlers lose their shit. And this is something that we've seen repeated in history in Canada over and over. Uh, white settlers, yeah, will lose their shit if they see any threat to their profits, benefits. Yeah, I, we, we got a podcast lined up with one of the um, um, frontline uh, Mi'kmaq people who were actually on the pier in the shoreline from like day one, uh, we're going to do a, we're going to sit down and have a conversation with her because she was there and she has a lot to say about it. So I'm looking forward to that one too, because that's the same question I have for them is, is the backstory because we're sitting over here in the prairie sort of just watching it on social media and watching it on the news. But there's a lot of cool, subtle details there that sort of led up to that and, and all this. Yeah. And also, but I mean, as as like, as an economic strategy, should we start moving money around with our allies so that we create this, like, you know, this is how we win our fight to capitalism. We buy the companies and then say, <laughs> oh, don't do this anymore. Do something else. Yeah, I would agree to certain extents with that. We do need strategy. We need to figure something out. And we do need to have economic principles in play um, that help us navigate those decisions. Uh, we need blueprints, uh, we need infrastructure, and people need to start having those conversations because we kind of just like take what's given to us, which which I don't like. Like we're not putting um, much thought into how some projects will play out, like, you know, companies offering up like shares in oil and gas industries, which is a dying industry. Like that's not a strategy for me at all. If we actually sat down as like indigenous people with our allies and said, well, where can we begin to invest energy and find that leverage point where we could create our own projects, our own infrastructure? Because people tend to think that I'm completely like anti-economic or anti-industry. You know, and to certain extents, I am, I guess. But no, for in a real decolonial project, we need to have conversations about what we will accept and what we won't accept. And right now I feel like um, majority of indigenous people are just taking what's offered to them without any structural analysis or awareness of where they want to be in the next 20 to 30 years. Cause you even said like with the Zapatista territory, um, when I was down there, they said that their project was the groundwork for their project was already being laid in the late seventies and early eighties. There's like long-term forecasts we have to keep in mind when we have political conversations. And that's one of the things I really wanted to foster is just to bring in you to give us sort of Central and South American context of the left, because it's so different from what we've seen and what we heard up here. Yeah. And I find that something that really gets in the way of us talking about politics here is uh, the culture of politeness, hey? And the, and the tone <laughs> policing is brutal. Like, you know, it's, it's just not nice. Yeah, I hear that a lot. Like, it's not nice to critique settler colonial political culture. It's not nice to critique white people because I'm just creating more of a divide. But there is a lot of tone policing, and that really limits our mobilization and our ability to mobilize. And then, of course, like we were saying, the anti-communism. And then for a lot of people, there's a lot of trauma. Yeah, yeah, there is. And there's a lot of fear and just a lot of low self-esteem in general in some cases. Uh, I think that this is why 
the transformation project that the liberation right has to be has to encompass the individual and the collective because we find our individual liberation only through others it's really important that we keep that in mind that that nature of political activities that it's it's always individual and collective at the same time because something that drives me nuts again it's when feminism is like turn into this yeah like individual project of self-improvement or or anti-racism for that matter as if it were like a project just to feel better uh like a project of becoming a better person individually yeah. as opposed to becoming a better person in your relationships exactly. with others yeah in relationship yeah and that's also being picked up by a lot of indigenous capitalists i find where people are big into business are big into wealth management and it's all individual wealth it's all you know personal self-esteem and personal growth guised as some sort of like transformational experience but it's not collectively transformational at all and it's apolitical and there's like no structure i find like even in particular to like people who are invested in 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 like liberal discourse so much of that isn't like structural in terms of giving indigenous people autonomy or recognizing indigenous people autonomy it's still very prescribed and it's almost like they go through the motions of just like shaking hands and and smiling with each other, but there's really no structural projects that take place. And if it is structural, it's often tied to the settler colonial state's control. <laughs> yeah, I think that you're right. And, and you know, this is what it's the limits of, of the TRC and reconciliation, right? That it's kind of like on the terms of the settler <laughs> state, on the terms of the settler state, they're very sorry and will apologize, but won't really make any generate any uh, actual accountability for not being in compliance with the calls to action, right? Like, where is that? Where can I go, you know, denounce that the UFS or the College of Medicine is not in compliance with it, <laughs> you know, with the calls? Yeah, there's no way to enforce the truth and reconciliation calls to action, or recommendations just because it's been sort of already approved and they promise they're going to go by it. But, you know, we know it's different. We know it's different on the ground. I mean, I hope that comes after that. That's what's going to come after what you're saying about structures that, that, that we can actually go in with our own terms. Yeah. We're lacking those. One of the key themes that we sort of just been talking around is that we're critiquing capitalism, obviously, and, and neoliberalism. But at the same time, why is it important like for this day and age with everything that's taking place and everything that we're seeing happen? Why is it essential for us to engage in capitalism critically? Well, because capitalism hasn't gone away. It's just gotten more sophisticated, right? And uh, if anybody thinks that this is happiness, like our individual feeling of going to the mall and buying something. Well, you know, anti-capitalism promises a way better horizon <laughs> of collective liberation and happiness based in our freedom, freedom of like that, that our value is not attached to, to our productivity, to our, our ability to generate capital or, or profit for somebody else. Right, that we don't have to see ourselves as as capital, right? How how am I <laughs> that we don't have to see our appearance as capital, our talents, our time, yeah. um, 
you know? Yeah, and for Indigenous people, that's really speaking to the core of who we are and what we want. We want freedom. We want land back. We want to live the lives we want to live uh, without racism, without oppression, without colonization, an autonomous life. I don't want to spend the rest of my life compromising my Indigenous ways of life. And I don't want to spend the rest of my life living away from my people and my lands. I don't want to see my sacred sites destroyed. I don't want to see our land lost and degraded. I want colonialism and colonization to stop in all sectors. And so we have to re-envision the lives we want. And yeah, this conversation, I think, hopefully opens up hearts and minds to having a discussion about political and economic futures. I really believe in, in, in that this is not, and we know that this is not the only way. But the main problem with capitalism after uh, the 90s, right, again, after the the quote-unquote fall of the Soviet Union, is that it's Mm -hmm. been presented to us as the only possible reality. We've been told that everything else failed. Socialism failed, don't you know? But capitalism hasn't failed. (laughs) Yeah, we're fed like this myth that it's the only economic system we could contribute to and benefit from. But the reality is, is like just my generation alone on the prairie, we're seeing the fallout of capitalism. We're seeing the fallout of extraction industry. We're seeing the fallout of mass production of the oil and gas tar sands and the, the environmental fallout. We're seeing agricultural runoff from this whole like even globalization where our lands are literally being used to feed the world. And the crops are being sent to parts of the world where people literally could feed themselves if they had the autonomy and land back option. So yeah, we could visually see how capitalism isn't necessarily working for our people in our landscapes right now. But at the same time, some people are subscribing to it as, as the way out of poverty or as the way out of, of the challenges we're living in. And it's interesting because the narrative is that we live under capitalism, but then when, when of course, the, the there's an economic collapse, then everybody is a socialist and the state, you know, of course has to be responsible for bailing everybody out. Yeah, everyone's a socialist in a snowstorm, right? <laughs> Especially on the prairie because we need to help each other in snowstorms. Yeah, right? And, uh, and I think it, we have to have an analysis that understands that we are being loaded in multiple ways we're being told that you know we have to make all this money that it's not going to us or our communities right and uh and i mean when i say we of course i'm talking in the sitting in a very privileged spot i am not one of the most exploited or economically uh insecure people within this system but no because capitalism it's what creates misery and poverty right? It's the, okay, I'm going to say the M word, Marxism. (laughs) (laughs) Don't run away, people. (laughs) Marxism really gives us an analysis to understand why we even have poverty, right? And to understand that for, for, in order for there to be poverty, somebody has to be wealthy, right? And it's about the accumulation of capital and the accumulation of wealth and power. And we are in, I think, at times in which we're seeing such a complete, like sudden concentration of wealth and power in ways that we hadn't seen before since probably, I don't know, the king of England. But, you know, 
Yeah, and it's so weird because we're actually seeing even some oppressed people and some indigenous people uplift the wealthy or defend the wealthy. And even celebrities, like there's a lot of celebrity fascination and wanting to become rich. But people don't realize that a lot of these rich people are getting rich off indigenous lands and indigenous people and oppressed people in oppressed lands. And this analysis is important. We need to have this analysis and sort of look at things critically in this way. And that's partly why I really want to join this conversation is to highlight the fact, too, that some of these millionaires aren't smart or great people. They're just privileged people. Can I say, can I say dumbass, dumbasses like Elon Musk, yep. you know, and Jeff Bezos and other, all these, you know, trillionaires are, are held up as, as our, you know, we should be looking up to them and yeah. exploiting tons of people to make lots of money. And that would make us smartest. So, you know, culturally mm-hmm. it's horrible too. Capitalism ruins everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. And I know there's like a lot of people in Indian country right now following Elon Musk, but they're not even I notice that people aren't connecting the dots of how Elon Musk is also advancing like US imperialism through his technology. Like for me in the back of my mind that's all like military tech. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. No, we have to connect those dots. Like, yeah, so I met somebody. Oh, Elon Musk is a cool guy. Oh, really? Well, what is he doing? And, you know, even this XR, whatever that he's playing with, it's like, really, this is what we need right now when the United States has reached like uh, 11 million yeah, cases, cases of, of COVID. COVID. Yep, totally. Because of inequities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we find that that's super cool. Yeah, it's a really weird time. And Elon's a really weird character in general. But for me, like the political economic analysis of his, his even his um his SpaceX stuff, I mean, the U.S. has no way to get satellites up right now. And for me, that's just like, oh, well, they're going to go to Elon. So for me, that's like, that's not an accident. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in feminist theory we call it compensatory acts of manhood (laughs) yeah you know and people live vicariously through that so the problem is that you know defranchised racialized men can look at that and and feel super like vicariously you know oh yeah elon is cool because look he's making us all feel cool about this thing that Mm -hmm. really doesn't do anything for anybody he has roots in saskatchewan too yeah, I guess like just on social media in the last few days, um, people found out his mom's from Saskatchewan. Well, they must have knew, but I just started noticing it on social media that his mom's from Saskatchewan. Do you follow old Saskatchewan too? Because that's where I saw it too. I saw the photo and I shared it. I shared the photo of him like at a family farm in southern Saskatchewan. Yeah, I saw it too at, at old Saskatchewan, which is the Facebook group that I follow. Yeah, I made a joke about how um, that's why Saskatchewan's next in line for his Starlink internet beta is because he's from here and it's nepotism (laughs) that's just the joke i made but i don't know yeah because i guess people could now sign up for um his starlink uh, satellite internet and i think saskatchewan's one of the areas where people could begin to sign up and i know a lot of like rural people are super excited because it's going to give them like faster internet and things like that but it comes at a cost like i mean just like i said his military tech and the political economic relationship he has to the u.s and i mean nasa's depending on him to get stuff into space um who else is depending on him you know what i mean and with u.s imperialism and military industrialization that's no accident in my eyes yeah no and and it, he's a libertarian too he's very much yeah 
anti-government, not for the same reasons that you and I would be anti-government. Yeah. He's, he's basically a free marketist, fervent believer. It's like a religion. Yeah, for sure. And that's a that's a terminology that I think a lot of people, people may not be fully aware of, like libertarianism. Mm-hmm. And I know we unpacked some of that. And we should have a conversation about that because people are supporting celebrities like Elon Musk because they're doing cool technology stuff, but they're not realizing there's economic and philosophical principles tied to those type of belief systems. And that's being passed on to like indigenous people because I see a lot of people on social media even subscribing to that um, and, and starting to promote that philosophy. But again, like, I don't know if, I just don't know if like in the Americas people are are being fueled by the Trump administration and just how blatantly open he was, but people are just like subscribing to certain politics. Yeah. Well, there, there's something about the language. Like, you know how it means to, different things to say liberal in England than in the U S in the same way mm-hmm. to say libertarian, like in South America, uh, I used to refer my to myself as libertarian because, because anarchists call themselves libertarian. Yeah. Right, so we understand libertarianism as as uh, as associated with uh, utopian communism and, and anarchism. Mm, interesting, like anti-authoritarianism and things like that. But the the thing is that here, when we're talking about libertarians, it refers specifically to economic yeah, libertarians, yeah. right? And they're basically they follow the doctrine of Hayek and. What's his face? Milton Friedman. They are religious Chicago boys. We call them Chicago boys in Chile because they graduated from the University of Chicago with Milton Friedman. And it's it's an ideology that thinks Mm -hmm. that the free market is everything, that there needs to be absolutely zero, no intervention from the state. Because the market just regulates itself and you just let people be entrepreneurs and like the economy just works. And that, unfortunately, is not true. It's a fallacy, right? Because what we know is that when we have zero regulations, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right, what we have is things like the Industrial Revolution (laughs) or what we have now, right? So uh, libertarians are invested in, in an economy that, in theory, has no state intervention or regulation. But again, unless they are going bankrupt because of a bust. <laughs> then they really <laughs> like the state intervention. Yeah, makes sense. And a lot of people need to be critical of that because when you're looking at like non-state interventions, then you're looking at like, let's look at example, like the tar sands, right? Is that if, if the tar sands had its way to just like completely do 100% extraction over the course of however long it took, it would be worse. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, even if you're like anarchist, or anti-state, I think that we all understand that uh, we need to use a, a multiplicity of tactics, you know, because again, capitalism, colonialism, patriarchy, they, uh, it, it's like, um, it keeps sh- changing in shape, right? Yeah. It, it adopts the language of popular culture. It disguises as this and as that. Yeah. So we have to keep also being very like strategic and fluid and, and uh, you know, use the instruments of the state if we have them, use the instruments of the UN if we have it. And that doesn't mean that we believe in the UN or in mm-hmm. state. Right? Yeah. 
Yeah, and that all boils down to also like it being a conscious choice where it's a plan, it's well thought out, there's structure to the political and economic discourse. And I think I really want to foster that in these podcasts and, and thanks for offering that for us too. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, you gave us a lot to unpack because I do know that like for a lot of the podcasts we're recording, we're talking around big things. And I did get some feedback from some listeners where they, where they commented that there's lots to think about in every episode we've been doing. And um, that's the plan. That's the goal is to generate conversations and, and not only conversations, but generate people beginning to think about these things. So in general, what's our relationship to the left? How does it have an impact? How does colonialism and colonization and even capitalism have an impact on our bodies and our landscape and, and even how we relate to one another and things like that? So that was the goal. And yes. yeah, you definitely hit the nail on the head with everything you've been talking about. And I'm even thinking about it like I'm I'm unpacking some of the things you've said. Well, I hope we have many more conversations like this because, you know, for, for me, it, uh, I had a very kind of like clear anti-capitalist and anti, anti-patriarchal analysis, but it was only coming to Canada and getting, you know, being in contact with the analysis of indigenous people and uh you know when i was doing grad school in in at ubc getting in touch with people like harsha walia and having profs like sunera thubani who quickly pointed at me that as a racialized immigrant i basically had two choices i was gonna get invited into whiteness and anti-indigenous racism or i aligned myself with anti-colonialism and uh and then the other thing that really was important to me uh, coming to in contact with all these theories and and uh, and political thoughts uh, of indigenous people here, uh, more specifically uh, Dr. Alex Wilson and Dr. Vernon St. Danis, is um, to understand uh, how my my own subjectivity had had also been very colonized. I mestizo in South America. We read it, it's so interesting, Milan. This is like going to blow your mind. But when when we say mestizo in South America, it's almost like we're saying it to say not completely indigenous, right? So we hold on to the European part of mestizo, right? Whereas when I came here, that's why I I had sort of like a a white subjectivity, white mestizo subjectivity. When I came here, the indigenous part of being mestizo came to the forefront because I was racialized here as a person of color, whereas in, you know, in in South America, I still had mestizo privilege of being kind of like more of the majority. So I don't know if that makes sense, but it's it's so interesting how coming here really made me understand things about myself and about my how i under, how i looked at myself in the past that was not um complete it's really strange that you migrate to the other side of the world to understand where you kind of like fit in or belong or yeah and i guess like for our listeners too when you go to central and and south america the um the spanish really did implement like a very aggressive like almost like a caste system or like a color system um, so yes. that's just still a very major hangover of that. So somebody could be, um, visibly brown and look native, but may not even identify as native in like Mexico or Central America or South America, which is different in North America where everyone's predominantly 
Anglo and there's a majority like white looking population. So if you're a person of color, you're visibly a person of color here because we are basically sometimes like in a sea of whiteness. And in Central and South America, that may not be the case where you will have brown people and some of them may not identify as indigenous at all. Yes. Yeah, we exactly. We we have colorism. And even though we have very like uh, rigid social classes that for the most part also cut along uh, race classes, race lines. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, a lot of us who are like dark, uh, you know, dark hair, dark eyes, brown skin. And we think that that we are because <laughs> because we have uh, European last names. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's such an interesting, such an interesting. Yeah, it's a very interesting world, Central and South America, and that I really want to build more relationships with um with with people there in the landscape there because again, there's a lot we could learn from each other, and that's one of the reasons I wanted you on this podcast was to open us up to the very unique geopolitical context down there and and how the left has been mobilizing because it's been a very different mobilization than what we've been experiencing here and observing. Um, but yeah, you really opened us mm-hmm. up to those conversations and and hoping that the listeners begin to think in context to the Americas in general. Yeah. Uh, the last thing that I wanted to kind of like plug in is that uh, we we do have a, a group, a solidarity, solidarity and an action group here that we haven't been very active the past year, ever since, you know, pandemic, et cetera. Uh, it's called Hands Off Latin America. And it's uh, an, a group that it's mostly uh, some Chileans, Salvadorians, Mexicans, Peruvians, people, Latin, Latinx people who have been living here for a while. Uh, and then some of our Canadian allies. And uh, yeah, we can like raise awareness about this analysis of how, uh, basically about Canadian imperialism and about how our, our struggles are connected. So you can look us up on Facebook. We share some news. Hands of Latin America, Saskatoon, or YXC. Shout out to my to my uncle Rodolfo Pino, who is one of my mentors. If you haven't haven't had him in your show, you should invite him. He's got a lot of history of revolutions and resistances in his body. Cool. I'll have to look into it for sure. Yeah, I met him at the action. You brought him to the action. Oh uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, he was there too. And yeah, so this group, do you guys come together over food and things like that? Well, we used to meet every Sunday because mm-hmm. first of all, we wanted to be together and talk about the things that were happening in Latin America. And yeah, we would eat and uh, just share. Um, also, you know, because we want to build relationships with each other that we can share our dreams and our common griefs, you know, for September 11th, we... We have to get together in any ways and, and grieve together for the the coup. Um, when something like, you know, now the violence that erupted in, in, in Peru or when they did the coup to Evo, like we, we try to at least hold space for each other because it's hard to be here and feel kind of like disconnected about the things that are happening down there that we feel so profoundly connected to, right? And so it's just kind of like a thing of survival sometimes to get together and be like, oh, yeah, you understand what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. 
having to move and then coming to the prairie, how has that been for you to be in Treaty 6 territory, to be in the prairie region? And how did this whole experience here unfold for you? I think I felt such a relief and I felt very rooted right right away in, in the communities that I landed here. Whereas living in Vancouver, I have been completely isolated <laughs> for the most part. But I, I felt like at ease when I came here. Isn't it strange? Yeah, that's really interesting. Like one of our narratives, like our oral histories we have with Treaty 2 is that um, Treaty welcomes people. Like Treaty 6 territory, we were conscious that there's going to be people who make their way here. And it welcomes people. It doesn't necessarily send people away. So long as they're here to our peace and diplomacy project. And for me, that includes political and economic conversations, um, stuff we talked about here this evening. So that was one of the really cool like geopolitical contexts for Treaty 6 territory. I always found interesting and it always led me to have really amazing conversations with immigrants and refugees and settlers in general. And I always position that in a conversation. So it's interesting for you to hear hear you say that you're going to come. You came here and you felt at ease. I really felt at ease because home, you know, a lot of, you know, home wasn't homely to me growing up. I grew up in a state of terror <laughs> and hiding and and family in prison and things like that that. It wasn't homely, but this is pretty homely to me. <laughs> I don't know why. I really find community here. I feel I feel very contained by the community here. Yeah. yeah that's yeah, awesome. Cool. Yeah, we'll have to get you out here to visit us one day too out in rural Saskatchewan. Absolutely. I, I got to buy a truck though because my little car won't make it out of my parking spot right now. <laughs> yeah, that's a very weird dynamic with the prairie is that we always have to have like either the truck or um, like four by four. <laughs> Milan, you're going to have to come to my radio show next. Oh yeah, I'd love to sit with you and have some conversations. There's lots we could talk about. Yes, we can pick our angle yeah. and then just go. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you, Manuela, for sitting with us. There's lots of um, conversations we even planned that we didn't really touch on, uh, but for the sake of time, and, and we'll probably get you back as a guest in the future, maybe sit down one-on-one when COVID passes and talk stories some more. But thanks for sitting down with us and giving us a lot to think about in terms of uh, Latin America and Latinx people and um, politics. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I'm a very grateful guest to this territory and uh, all the indigenous people that live here and make this. And that, oh, they're so, you know, I love living here on the West Side too because, yeah. Yeah, there's a really strong community on the West Side of Saskatoon. This is where I feel at home (laughs) with indigenous people on the West Side and, and talking about politics with indigenous people too. Mm-hmm. Totally. Have a good night, Milan. Yeah, thank you, and we'll talk soon. Yes, absolutely. Take care. Okay, bye bye. This episode was produced and mixed by Mylan Tatusis with additional production support by Daryl Lucero and Peyton Jackson. If you like what we do, please like, subscribe, and share. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at The Radical Narrative Podcast. If you wish to contact us, our website is www.radicalnarrative.com.